he's an amazing human being and his tenacity on this case, all journalists should thank him. He is the journalist who, without any remuneration for doing it, has worked for decades to tell the truth. I really admire the guy. That was Kathy Colby talking about the subject of today's bonus episode, Don Devereaux. As we began working on the syndicate, Jana Bombersbach suggested that we speak to Mr. Devereaux about his decades-long investigation into the murder of Don Bowles, telling us that no one knows more about this case than him. And as usual, Jana was right. Since the late 70s, Don Devereaux has faced tremendous backlash from establishment figures because he refused to toe the company line regarding the state's theory of the case. Yet he forged ahead, continuing his investigation into his late 80s, critics be damned. Lake Headley may have said it best when he wrote the following passage in the book, Loud and Clear, that covered the Bulls investigation. This is a quote. Don Devereaux, I would learn, was a true investigative journalist, one of the best. He left his job at a Santa Fe newspaper to join the IRE team, outraged by the murder of Bowles, extremely idealistic, and obtaining riches didn't appear anywhere on the list of Don's priorities. And he possessed the admirable qualities of rigid honesty, integrity, and a workaholic's total attention to detail. During the course of our relationship, he made me think that if Don Bowles could be said to have a successor in Arizona, his name was Don Devereaux. Here's part one of our first recorded interview with Don Devereaux, unedited. I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, beginning in the 1960s. By 1970, I was pretty active as a community organizer in Santa Fe, like a lot of you know left-wing social justice kinds of community organizers. A couple of alternative newspapers, one in Santa Fe, one in Albuquerque. And as organizers, we occasionally wrote pieces in the alternative weeklies trying to explain what the hell we were doing. And I backed into journalism that way uh, as an organizer explaining what the hell I was <laughs> working on at the time. And uh, my major claim to fame in that capacity was land development uh, north of Santa Fe on Indian land, a uh, 99-year lease uh, Pueblo land. Uh, and the Indians were not real happy with the fact that the BIA had sort of crowded them into doing a, de- a deal with some private developers. And it had a bad smell to it. And uh, as an organizer, I increasingly became a journalist, digging into the the, uh, the workings of this land development operation. And the general manager was based in Phoenix at the time, kind of Irv Jennings. As a consequence, it, it smelled like it could be mobbed up in some capacity. Because it was in Phoenix and I was in Santa Fe, I got a hold of a Phoenix reporter named Don Bowles who had done a lot of work on land fraud in Arizona at the time. This was in the early 70s, and Don helped me uh, gradually develop the information uh, that this land development in New Mexico was actually an Ed Warren operation. Ed Warren was sort of the the czar of land fraud in Arizona at that time and was branching out into (laughs) New Mexico without anybody's knowledge. And the the BIA, which is supposed to represent the the Pueblo, uh, had not really vetted the subcontracts of the developer and didn't realize that he was basically dealing with uh, Ned Warren for marketing and bookkeeping and all that kind of stuff. It took us several years to get to that point because it was pretty carefully buried 
but by the early 70s, 72, 73, somewhere, we began writing about that. Uh, Jack Anderson picked it up in a Washington column for his column, and other major newspapers picked it up from him, not from us. And the BIA stepped in embarrassed and basically shut the lease down. And Don Bowles had helped me a great deal in the, the Phoenix end of this investigation. I'd come over a few times to work with him and meet him and everything, but he did a lot of the work here just out of his head. He knew he knew from addresses, what, what addresses in Phoenix were Warren-related addresses. And just a lot of things he knew from experience uh, made it possible for us to nail this thing down. And uh, so we shut it down. It got, it got shut down before it could really get off the ground. And that was a, a major, my first major exploration of working primarily as a journalist, not as a, not as a, as an organizer. And then Don was killed, and I felt some obligation to do something about that. <clears throat> I had something to do with uh, getting IRE involved in the Arizona Project. Bob Green, who ultimately ran the Arizona Project from Newsday, came to see me in Santa Fe, and I came over to Phoenix and did a little legwork that summer to get some ducks in a row for the project to arrive. And I played a a curious kind of role in the Arizona Project as a result, not so much as a journalist at that point, uh, but as a, a fundraiser, as an organizer. I had a lot of progressive foundations that knew me, knew my work, respected me, that I could tap into for grant money. And so I did a lot of fundraising from progressive foundations for the Arizona Project and helped bankroll a great deal of what happened here. And I also uh, provided the uh, the ideas uh, for a couple of the of the uh, articles that we did in the of the 23 series, I was familiar with what had happened at Arrowhead Ranch, with undocumented workers there and the mistreatment of them, and uh, I encouraged them to tackle that as a topic, and I encouraged the uh, Arizona Project people to do one article on New Mexico uh, as a neighboring state, and I contributed a lot of files and contacts and stuff for that, and I provided the tour guide for the uh, Arizona for the Arizona Project effort on Arrowhead Ranch. Uh, I went through some old farm labor people I knew and got one of those guys to uh, sneak people in and out at night to talk to workers out there. Um, but I didn't do any writing for the Arizona Project. I, I basically did fundraising and, and, and idea promoting and contact arranging. And my first serious writing became later in 79 when I went to work for the Scottsdale Progress. And that was my, my graduation point really from organizing to journalism as a, as a mainstream kind of, first time I'd worked for a daily newspaper uh, without any real background. I mean, it was a kind of a stretch, um, but, you know, it was manageable, and uh, I wrote fairly well, and I turned out to be pretty good at investigative work, and so it, it, it worked out for me, but it was something I began without any certainty I was going to be able to pull it off, uh, uh, having only written for alternative papers. Alternative papers didn't have editors, really. I mean, I, whatever I submitted, they ran, basically. <laughs> I didn't have to go through lawyers, editors, right. all that kind of stuff. So it was a new experience to have to work with a managing editor and an attorney on the phone before we went to print to make sure I wasn't going to get sued, sure. hopefully. And all that kind of stuff was, uh, was new. But, uh, you know, I came through the process and uh, got two Pulitzer nominations along the way. So I, for, for someone with no journalism background, I did, I did fairly well. And I, I'd love for... A- our, our listeners to understand just how long you've been investigating the Bulls case. Well, you know, I, I began, if you want to call it, looking at it immediately when Don was, was car bombed in 76. Uh, so I was sniffing around, certainly, uh, trying to get some sense of what happened. But when the Arizona Project occurred, 
and Bob Green ran it, and there were lots of experienced guys there. We had decided, which I think was a mistake at the outset, not to investigate directly the Bulls homicide, because Bob Green argued, and I agreed at the time, that we didn't need 36 reporters out on the streets muddying the waters for cops who were doing a criminal investigation. So what we decided to do was write a series of articles of the kind he might have written had he lived, uh, muckraking articles about Phoenix, just to demonstrate that the press was not intimidated by what had happened, that killing one reporter would just bring more of us to town. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wouldn't serve any practical purpose. But I didn't do any real serious... I, I left I left town in 77, went back to Santa Fe, probably thinking that everything was okay. Although we hadn't investigated the Bulls homicide, we had kind of endorsed the official investigation in the preamble to the project that Bob Green wrote. And I assumed that people like Green and everybody else, if they were confident in what was going on, they had justification for that. And so I left town assuming that the direction the case was taking was probably the correct direction. I moved back to Arizona in 77 as a kind of a quid pro quo for having arranged for an old farm labor organizer to play tour guide for the reporters at Arrowhead Ranch. He asked me as a favor, since he got his juices flowing about organizing again. Mm-hmm. You know, it hadn't done it for a while. The UFW had abandoned Arizona in the early 70s, and there was no organizing going on. He was an old UFW organizer. And he asked me as a quid pro quo, since I help you, would you come over here for a year and help us get set up as a labor organizing effort in Maricopa County? And I was kind of obligated, and I was curious about it. And as an organizer, it, it was all the old feelings of activism coming back to me again. So I said, sure. So I moved over in 77, and we organized the Maricopa County Organizing Project as a civil rights farmworker organization. And later, the Arizona Farmworkers Union, where we got the first contract. I was busy uh, doing all of that kind of stuff when uh, John Marshall, who was the publisher of the Scottsdale Progress, began, when he learned I was back in town, Mm -hmm. uh, hassling me to come to work for him to take another look at the Bulls case. He was dissatisfied with uh, the official way the case was developing. The stage theory, he had had discomfort with it uh, for, I thought... I learned later were probably good good reasons, but I was reluctant to do it. I kept I kept putting him off, and he began pressuring me in the fall of '77, and I didn't go to work for him until spring of '79. Uh, I just kept saying, "You'll find somebody else." I'm I'm busy doing farm labor stuff, mm-hmm. and finally in the spring of '79, after he was really nagging me consistently, I I said, "Okay, John, I'll give you a couple of months." I was still doing farm labor work, but I'll double up and I'll do two jobs at once, and I'll. Uh, take another look at the Bowles case to see what is there. And much to my chagrin, almost, uh, within a couple of months, it became very clear to me that uh, Max Dunlap and Jim Robeson had not received a fair trial. The amount of uh, exculpatory information that should have been provided in discovery to their defense attorneys was astonishing. Uh, and, and the amount of stuff that was withheld by the prosecution. I mean, hundreds of pages of reports and audio tapes and stuff that was exculpatory was withheld. So my first reaction was they hadn't gotten a fair trial. Uh, and by the fall of that year, I was convinced that they weren't even the right people. Uh, the, the information that was suppressed as I began to discover what it was basically involved information suggesting dog track and organized crime involvement in, in the Bulls homicide. It was remarkably consistent with Bulls dying words. <laughs> in a, an immense amount of material that was exculpatory to Dunlap and Robeson that went in that direction was not shared with the with the defense and and there was so much of it 
that when you contrasted the amount of stuff that pointed in another direction compared to the fact that almost the entire case against uh, Dunlap and Robeson was John Adamson, one guy, and here you had this whole body of testimony going in a completely different direction from many people, just as a matter of, of weighing it, it became very clear that there was something wrong here. And uh, so by the end of 79, I was really on a on a toot. I, I was convinced that it was wrong, and I felt some responsibility for that. I'd been with the Arizona Project, and, and you know, we clearly had failed at that level. Uh, you're not going to you're not going to honor the memory of a slain colleague with a miscarriage of justice. Right. <laughs> and, and if we had been blind to what was going on, shame on us. And so I felt maybe a, a special obligation as somebody who knew Don and as a member of the Arizona Project that if we screwed this thing up somehow, <clears throat> we needed to, I needed at least to fix it, to stay around as long as I could to try to unravel it which I then attempted to do as long as the progress would let me do it. And I worked for John for until sometime in the late 80s when he sold the paper. And uh, I lasted one more year with the new owners and got pink slipped and, and uh, began just independently doing my newsletter and ultimately uh, my, my website. It's not an obsession. I, I, I've done lots of other things in that period of time. But whenever I've had moments of freedom to do things, I've worked persistently uh, as I could on the Bulls case and uh, was determined before I died to get as much of that record uh, on my website as I possibly could. And I'm feeling kind of relieved at 88 that I've finally got, I think, enough out there that I can walk away from it thinking I've left a, left a record behind yeah. that I think is probably pretty accurate. Um, and one of the reasons I'm prepared to do podcasts is you know, anything I can do to, to, to further that legacy I would like to I would like to do keep as much of a record out there as possible and I'm aware of the fact that even though I'm 88 there are lots of younger people out there in the world that are going to look at a documentary film or listen to podcasts that might not read my website or a book one of the reasons I never did a book I was encouraged to do so at some point just as a matter of time and energy I became convinced that if I ever could get a book published it'd probably be an ebook this state of the game and why not just add stuff to my website just like chapters of a book and not attempt to go back and start from scratch and, and uh, reorganize something. So I, I took the easier way out. I just added increments to the website that finally got with the last four installments. I think everybody identified that I wanted to identify as part of this thing. Yeah. So I've graduated kind of gradually, if you will, in, into being a journalist when I never really was one to begin with. Um, but uh, investigative work is fun. Uh, I spent about 10 years after I left the Progress uh, working with Unsolved Mysteries on NBC when Bob Stack was a talking head. I did it out of Phoenix. I didn't. Mm -hmm. I went to Burbank uh, on Wednesday nights to attend the broadcast because we had a telecenter there and I could sit in and watch the calls come in. I became very good at cold cases. I developed a real skill in working cases that were dead in the water. And we had, for the 10 years I was working with Unsolved Mysteries, about a 25% solve rate for cold homicide. We reached back in those days a huge audience. We didn't have cable television then, really. We had three three networks and PBS. And so Wednesday night prime time reached millions of people. Uh, we reached like one out of every eight Americans, like 30 million people or something at that time. And it was kind of hard to hide from us. And we had a telecenter you could call for, without being identified, without costing any money. And if you had any information, and what we discovered was there was lots of information out there. The first, the first story I did with, with Unsolved Mysteries uh, had to do with Chuck Morgan in Tucson. And we got around uh, maybe over a thousand phone calls on that broadcast. And a lot of the stuff I did had that kind of response. And I discovered 
through my own efforts, that we had about a 3% utility rate. That doesn't sound like much, but for a 1,000 phone calls, that's 30 useful leads. And if you're prepared, which I was prepared to do, to, to dig through all of that stuff and get rid of the chaff and, and concentrate on the stuff that was good, that we could occasionally you know, solve a case. It was exciting. Uh, when I was in the print media, you know, I might get a couple of angry letters in the mail or something, but not a thousand responses. So it was like like having a new toy. We couldn't go in depth the way I could in print, but we reached a broader public than I ever could have hoped for with a response. And so I had a hell of a good time in the 10 years that I worked with uh, Unsolved Mysteries, working a number of segments for them. I did it on a freelance basis. I never, as I was with the Progress, uh, I never went on the Progress's staff. I didn't want to cover school board meetings. And I didn't want to do stuff I didn't want to do for Unsolved Mysteries. So I didn't get paid as much by either one, but I had complete freedom to choose what I wanted to do. And that was the most important thing, to be a freelancer and, and not get diverted on projects that didn't appeal to me. But that was a good learning ground for me as well for cold case investigations. I got good at it. I discovered as I got older, which I certainly am now, that that I could do it from my house on the telephone. I could get people to talk to me. I've always been old school in that I, I don't have a computer. I don't, don't do my research online. I have a website I've never seen. Friends of mine put it up. But I was the kind of journalist that did primary research. I, I knocked on doors. I found people nobody had located. And if I could find them on the phone, I got them that way. And I discovered I had a pretty good knack of getting people to talk to me. And uh, people do like to talk. And if you like to listen, they're often prepared to tell you things. So I discovered I could sit back in my house, even as an old man, and work stuff from great distances and, and do it quite well. And uh, I've had a, a delightful time working on stuff like that. I worked on the Oklahoma City bombing case for uh, CBS 60 Minutes 2. I worked on... Uh, the Mary Meyer thing with a fellow named Peter Janney, uh, who uh, I, I worked on the second and third edition of his book, Mary's Mosaic. That's going to be a Hollywood film now pretty soon. It's currently a play in Washington, D.C. It's been a lot of fun working on all that stuff, but yeah. the Bowles case has kind of been sandwiched in among all that other stuff. Okay. This time has gone by because it yeah. was the one thing kind of nagged at me. Happily, as my body has gradually deteriorated, uh, my mind has stayed relatively in good shape. My memory is is very good. And so uh, I can still I can still function at that level. I'm clearly at the last chapter of my life and how much longer I have I, I don't know but it's not going to be a hell of a long time. So I'm anxious to get everything done I can do while I can do it. So I'm talking to you. Much appreciated and all, obviously all of our conversations are greatly appreciated and your no help problem. in this no problem. thing has been amazing. And I will continue to pester you even after we, after we complete our interviews for, for okay. your knowledge. So I, I really appreciate it. No, no problem. Uh, I wanted to kind of set the table for what Phoenix was in the 60s and 70s with regards to the, the conversations we've had previously about the infiltration of organized crime. And I, I know how deep your knowledge is on that subject. And I, I wonder if you could just kind of take listeners, kind of the first signs of organized crime we have in the Valley from the Willie Beoff murder and the Gus Greenbaum murder to, you know, the heavy infiltration starting with Joe Bonanno retiring to Tucson and everything that followed after it's, that. It's, it's a little more complicated than that, actually. After the Second World War, uh, mob families in New York and Chicago and Detroit and lots of places often had a stake in the wholesale produce business in those cities. Mm-hmm. I don't quite know how all that worked, but they had a stake in the produce docks. Uh, they were skimming them or running them or owning them or some damn thing. But the mob was heavily involved in wholesale produce operations all over the country. And in the post-World War II period, 
Some of those mob groups flirted with the idea of vertical integration and began drifting into places like Arizona and California and getting in the produce growing business. Grapes in California often, uh, in Arizona, citrus, citrus lots of places. So we had some New York and, and Detroit people coming out here before Bonanno even was big in the state, flirting with the idea of buying a ranch and raising grapefruit. Some of that lasted, some of that didn't. Bonanno eventually joined the parade, uh, settled in Tucson, and, and gradually asserted himself as the dominant mob figure in Arizona. The, the Jewish mob was here in Phoenix, Willie Beoff and, and the Green Bombs and people like that, and uh, close when they were here to Goldwater and a lot of those people. The, uh, they were basically Lansky, Nathan Volosian, the kosher Nostra, as they were yeah. called in some circles. <laughs> uh, when the Italians really got interested in Phoenix, they basically took those folks out of the game. And the Green Bombs, both of them were murdered, husband and wife, and Willie Beoff, and, and the, the Italians took over the scene pretty effectively at that point. Bonanno invited Chicago in. Chicago did not come uh, without his permission. Uh, there was not any kind of a conflict between the Chicago mob and, and Joe. They came out here and, and they were pretty much told to stay in the Phoenix area. And Bonanno basically stayed with his people in Tucson. And they operated a lot of joint ventures uh, where they were sharing uh, the effort and the, and the proceeds of whatever they were doing, the dog tracks being ultimately one of them. Bonanno initially controlled the Greyhound skim stuff, a silent partner, but he shared that with Chicago when they came in. And even though it was an amicable relationship, if you were a Chicago guy and you went to Tucson to screw around without Bonanno's permission, bad things could happen to you. Uh, you know, he, there still was a boundary a uh, jurisdictional thing between the two. If you want to do something in, in Tucson, we might let you, but you know, knock on our door and ask us if it's okay sure. so we know you're in town <laughs> and, and it's okay with us, whatever you have in mind. But don't come down here to freelance. It stayed a Bonanno and Chicago operation in Phoenix until probably sometime in the late 80s, uh, around the same time that Vegas opened up or basically died as a mob town after Spalatra was killed in 86. Uh, I mean, Chicago had pretty much run for a variety of mob groups, the Vegas scene. But it stayed in Phoenix, it stayed Chicago for quite a while. We became a, a almost like a colony of the Chicago mob, going back to the Ocardo family when they were when they were there, and Al Taco and people like that. And there were lots of those guys here. Uh, one of the reasons they came here was the uh, the banking system. We had a an unusual a blind trust system in Arizona that was much like Switzerland, maybe even better, where you had a capacity to get a bank account through a trust officer with a number, and only the trust officer knew who you were. But that bank account could also own real estate. It could own land and buildings, which is pretty unusual. So maybe 30, 40% of Maricopa County back in those days was owned by number. Nobody knew who the hell owned it. And the FBI and nobody had penetrated that system effectively. And with that kind of privacy, lots of mob money that might have gone to Switzerland or offshore banking somewhere came to Arizona. And a lot of, a lot of corporate money did too. It was funny money that they were hiding from the, <laughs> the, the tax people yeah. or some damn thing. It became a haven for all kinds of off-the-books funding. And you could not only invest your money here, but your money could make money while it was here by owning real estate. So it was a twofer, you know, yeah. you could, you could have a safe place to put your money and that money could earn money while it was doing that. Yeah. So, so that was the reason, for example, that Arizona developed rapidly in ways New Mexico didn't. 
you know, they, all that capital was flowing in here. The, the lending ratio at banks is dependent on how much money it's got. And with the amount of capital flowing into the banks, especially Valley National Bank in those days, there was lots of, lots of investment capital available for businesses. And so this became a very good place to come as an entrepreneur to start whatever the hell you wanted to start and, and have capitalization to, to do it. With the money also came the mob. I mean, you're, the, the mob interest followed the money out here. Sure. And you had the situation where almost everybody in town that was borrowing money from the bank was tapping into mob funding one way or another. I mean, Dell Webb Corp threw a, some, some uh, stock trading with, with Vegas, ended up being about 30-some percent owned by the mob. Not as a crooked corporation, but just as a legitimate investment. The mob yeah. now owned X amount of percentage of Dell Webb Corporation. And a lot of the mob investments were basically in stuff that were perfectly legit. It was just investments. Uh, but it was the capital available. And, and, and with that money and all the guys, the, 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 the mores, the ethics of the town got kind of blurry. Uh, it became socially acceptable for Barry Goldwater to hop a ride to Vegas with the Green Bombs or the Italians, whoever it was, and and for Joe Bonanno to be a frequent guest at the Phoenix Country Club. I right. Mean, there was a lot of fraternization going on uh, that would have seemed in other situations ethically dubious, but the the climate in Phoenix accepted it. It was it was just routine, and so there was an ethos here that was a little bit different than most big cities I've lived in, where there were more distinct boundaries between organized crime and the Chamber of Commerce. But we had a merging of the two in ways that were kind of unusual. This was a town without a particularly high crime rate, but it was terribly mobbed up at the same time. Yeah. Big difference. Uh, so you had a lot of corruption that was not necessarily represented by burglars or armed robberies. Sure. But, but you had a lot of corner cutting and a lot of just accepting of, of sleazy business practices uh, became sort of the standard of, of the way things were done here. It also was politically tightly held in ways that not too many cities were. Phoenix at that time was less than a third the size of what it is now as a metropolitan area. Much tinier place. It had citywide elections. It didn't have district systems, which meant that the, the white folks, if you will, could dominate all of the elections. We didn't have districts. So blacks and Hispanics did not have much representation in city government. It, and that was all tightly held. There was something called the Phoenix 40. They were actually 52 in number mm -hmm. when Don was killed, but they were called the Phoenix 40 from their origin. And it was, you know, 40 of the prominent bankers, business people, publishers, TV station owners. It was the, the cream to the crop of the Chamber of Commerce. And they had a front organization called Charter Government. And to run for office or to seek any kind of high-level political appointment, you almost had to have the endorsement of Charter Government. I mean, they kind of handpicked police chiefs, fire chiefs, councilmen, candidates for Congress. Uh, they were a screening area for anybody that was going to rise to any level of power. So they, Phoenix 40 controlled the damn place. And the publisher of the, of the Republic and the Gazette, were uh, the Polian people were certainly represented. And they were, and you had two, two papers owned by the same person. So you had Providence and Vestia, if you will, in, in Phoenix. They tilted the news, but they mostly just didn't cover what they didn't want to cover. And, and so they weren't real popular with a lot of people in town. Mm -hmm. They had a political point of view, and it was pretty dominant. One of Don Bull's problems as a reporter was he was completely out of step with the paper. Uh, Don was a Democrat. The paper was certainly not. And uh, and they didn't like him very quickly after he began working here because he kept sticking his nose in the business of friends of theirs. And he was an embarrassment. Uh, they were constantly having to try to call him off stuff and reel him back. And Don was not easy to do in that respect. He was 
pretty dogged about what he was interested yeah. in. So, you know, he got out of step with them early on, and they were in the process of trying to force him out when he was killed. He was on his way out the door, whether he knew it or not. But that, that climate was certainly uh, an issue at the time. And as a consequence, it was a violent town. Uh, a lot of things were decided here in a very violent kind of way. Ned Warren had emerged uh, as the land fraud czar in the state at that time. Uh, his real name was Nathan Waxman. He was uh, in federal prison in Florida, I think, when he was spotted as a, by the a talent scout for Lansky, Nathan Voloshin. Uh, there was a speaker of the U.S. House in, in, in Washington. I think Carl Albert was his name from Texas. And Nathan Voloshin operated out of Carl Albert's office, the Capitol. And he was a talent scout for, for Lansky. And he spotted Nathan Waxman as a talent. Well, he was... He, he was in for some kind of fraud, and he got him released early through pull in, in Washington. And his name got changed to Ned Warren, and he got dispatched to Phoenix. And when he came out here, he had an already established line of credit with Valley National Bank, <clears throat> one of the signers being Bob Goldwater. So uh, he came he came with a lot of a lot of help. A lot of that was based on the old Goldwater family connection with the Jewish mob. And you know, curiously, in, in, a, in a way, I kind of resent. Uh, later on, during the Vietnam War, Ned Warren was able to advertise real estate for sale to GIs in, in Vietnam with Barry Goldwater's letter of endorsement, uh, which was really ridiculous. They were selling blue sky under various guises to people. And I don't know how many servicemen bought lots while they were in Vietnam, but the notion of uh, it, it bothered me that, that Goldwater would would subject U.S. servicemen to that sure. kind of thing with his with his blessing. And I can't believe he did it unknowingly. One of the ways that, that uh, Ned Warren lasted as long as he did in, in his fraud life here was he, ch- he chopped the money very generously with the Republican Party. He gave large contributions to people. He paid bribes. Uh, he was a, he was a generous scammer. It bought him a lot of time. And there were a few Democrats on his payroll, but it was mostly mainstream Republican Party people. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that Ed Lazar, his bookkeeper, was murdered in 1975 uh, was not so much to protect Ned, who at that time was, he realized he was toast. He was under both state and federal indictment, and it was gonna it was gonna happen. And he also was in the in the early stages of congestive heart failure, so he knew it didn't matter whether he got two years or twenty, he was not gonna survive very yeah. long in prison. So Ned knew he was not gonna survive he all knew of that. His time was short. But one of the reasons Lazar was killed was Lazar knew where the bodies were buried. He had handled a lot of the money that went from Warren to Republican Party people and state officials and all that kind of stuff. And he was killed more to protect them than to protect Ned. Uh, and that was the, the truth of that. He was killed shortly before he was going to be grand jury. I don't know what he would or would not have said at the grand jury. I have no idea whether he would have cooperated or taken the fifth or what. But obviously the, the, the folks around him, uh, not so much Warren, but the people that Warren had been greasing, did not want that to happen. And Warren was under a great deal of pressure to make sure it didn't. And Warren arranged uh, for her, for him to be killed with Carl Verevi, actually, is the one of the two guys that, that killed him. When when Warren was approaching trial, there might have been 12, 15 people like Lazar killed here in town. A lot of potential witnesses against Ned died, stabbed to death, curious plane crashes, shot, everything you can think of, and essentially unsolved. Uh, it was just like like a just a, a lot of bodies on the street yeah. <laughs> over a couple of year period, and that was not that unusual here. Murder was an option. It was like a menu when you choose either a BLT or a ham and rye or murder. It was an option. And people chose it with remarkable ease because there was a climate in Phoenix where if you were a Phoenix 40 kind of protected person, 
you could probably get away with it. So between the mob and the elite, murder became an option. When the decision was made to kill Bowles, it was not a decision that anybody wrestled with over you know, a, a lot of sleepless nights. They just made the decision to do it. And it was just a choice. And they made it with an absolute certain conviction in their own minds that they could get away with it. And it turns out they were right. You know, they did. So it was a, it was a different time and place. Uh, it was a violent, tightly held city uh, with uh, a lot of willingness to do things that Phoenix would not be inclined to do anymore. And one of the hardest jobs I've always had as an older journalist is trying to explain to younger people uh, what Phoenix was like at that time because they tend to see Phoenix in the context of the Phoenix they know and they can't imagine the stuff I'm describing and they kind of glaze over when I try to tell them that this was a different town in a different place and, and you really almost had to be there to appreciate it. I have to say as an old guy, I enjoyed that Phoenix as a place to work a lot more than the Phoenix I live in now. It was very black and white, a lot less gray, and a lot more exciting. There was an element of risk, literally. I mean, being a journalist could be a life and death career, you know. It was a whole different kind of uh, world. And, and I got up and worked here. I was doing farm labor work and journalism at the same time. I had a journalism office in Scottsdale and a farm labor office out in El Mirage. I spent an awful lot of time driving back and forth between the East Valley and the West Valley. But I had a, between the farm labor stuff, and which is always exciting, and uh, I mean, strikes are a lot of fun, and the journalism, it was, it was a turn-on every day to get up in the morning and do whatever I was doing. And when I was younger doing that, a lot of the people that were involved were still around and alive and, you know, functioning, which is no longer the, the case. Uh, so I had a chance to bump into some of the people that were, you know, really there. Uh, and I found that very exciting. I also had something going for me that other journalists in town, by and large, did not. I learned how fairly early on as a journalist to have organized crime contacts. My, my mentor locally in that regard was a guy named Jack Weaver, Sergeant, Sergeant Weaver. of the Phoenix Police Department. And Jack became controversial as a cop because he did the same thing. I mean, there was a time when the Phoenix Intelligence Unit monitoring an organized crime guy would sit down the block with binoculars and try to get the license plates of the people going in and out of his bar. And Jack said, screw that. You know, I'm going to go in and have a stool, have a beer, introduce myself. I'm going to see who's in there, and I'm going to just, you know, hang out. And I'm going to treat them respectfully, but I'm, yeah, they're going to know who I am. But it's much better than sitting down the street with binoculars. And he actually ended up in a, in a friendly relationship with Buddy Taco that way. Uh, they got to know each other and respected each other and were careful with their boundaries and all that kind of thing. Uh, so I did the same thing. I, I basically knocked on doors of those guys including Taco. And through Buddy Taco, I, I met Johnny Luciano. I met Joe DeCaro, who was a one-time big shot in Chicago and the Accardo family, retired out here. When I wanted to get to uh, Leo Lane and the, and the uh, ruling council of the Denver mob, I needed him as a witness. I went from Buddy Taco to uh, Joe DeCaro to Al Taco to the Small Doan family in Denver to get permission to talk to, to Leo. But I had developed a capacity to do that. And uh, so I had sources... And maybe people would think mob guys wouldn't talk to you, but they often do. And, I mean, they're not involved in everything. And and they have their own feelings about some of the stuff that's going on. And they are guarded. They tell you what they're willing to tell you. They don't tell you mostly what they are not willing to tell you. Uh, Buddy Taco saved me a lot of time without ever verbally telling me a hell of a lot. I could run information by him and by his response, his nonverbal response, which was one of three things. It was either a, a kind of a shrug to let me know I was on target, 
It was a waving me off if I was, or it was absolutely stoic, no expression at all. If it was a topic he didn't want me, me to pursue, he, he went, I could read him like a book and he knew it, but I couldn't quote him. You know, I could never go to the progress and write an article that said, Buddy Taco said, you know, right. he didn't. But Buddy gave me a lot of stuff. Buddy was a friend of Jimmy Robeson. And Buddy knew that Jimmy, Buddy never told me who did it. But uh -huh. Buddy knew. He had an intelligence system like nobody I've ever seen. But he knew. He never told me. But he knew Robeson didn't. And he told me early on, if I would help get Jimmy straightened out, he'd watch my back. And I said, I thank you for that. I appreciate it. And when I became convinced that Jimmy didn't do it, I said so. Jimmy was certainly not you know, an angel. He certainly ran around with John and did some things, but he, yeah. didn't, he didn't kill Don Bulls. But Buddy respected that. Uh, it got to the point that I had dinner more than once at, at his home. I ate his wife's spaghetti sauce, which was Andy's spaghetti sauce, was first rate. And I was in and out of his bar a lot, and, and, uh, and I got to other people through him, but I never could have got to. His brother, Al Taco, in Chicago was a big shot. Buddy out here in Phoenix was not. He was a mob guy who was not, as a younger brother, was not looked upon as really up to snuff to make the big time. He got farmed out to Phoenix, and he was involved locally in some very small-scale receiving stolen property, money laundering. Most of the stolen property was just equipment for his restaurant, you know, mm -hmm. kind of thing. Money laundering stuff was done with a with a cop as a collector, as a matter of fact. When when uh, when Buddy was in prison later on, he he got 20 years for racketeering. Uh, Bob Corbin, when he was AG, uh, decided to make it look like Buddy was the mafia boss of Phoenix and with informants and everything, busted him on a bunch of minor stuff. Got him 20 years where he died in prison. Uh, yeah, Bob was out to make it look like he was crushing organized crime, <laughs> and he picked a low life, a low level guy to go after. If you go back and read the Arizona Republic, when the Taco indictment came down, for which he ultimately went to prison, on the front page of the Republic there is an article about that, and there is one unindicted co-conspirator in the Taco gang, named Don Devereaux, and they claimed they had discovered me in a wiretap where Buddy mentioned talking to me about something. Because they couldn't connect me with any of his crimes, I couldn't charge him, but they may be an unindicted co-conspirator. And what really pissed me off is that I had told George Weiss, who was a friend of mine at that time, who was working for the AG's office, part of the Arizona Project, I told George, I said, I know Buddy is under surveillance. I know you guys are looking at him. And I want you to know you're going to see me going in and out of his bar and out of his house. I'm cultivating him as a source. And I'm telling you that. And in fact, if you want me to ask him anything, feel free. Yeah, I'd be happy to yeah. ask you. Uh, they made it sound like they didn't know that I was doing that, like they found me on a wiretap. And that really pissed me off. Uh, happily, I had a publisher who understood what I was doing. And I had told my publisher at the Progress that I'm cultivating these guys. I'm talking to these guys. I'm going to be having dinner with them or maybe even guests in their house once in a while. Yeah. And if you want to go after them, be my guest, but you got to use some other, some other reporter than me. I'm not going to break bread with these guys, stab sure. them in the back because yeah. I learned something about them in the process. So, And John understood that. He had other reporters. If they wanted to go after somebody, they could give, give that job to somebody else. So my publisher under, understood why I was being called an unidentical conspirator. But it pissed me off. It ultimately didn't hurt me that much, although it probably pleased some other people. There was, a, there was a, an assumption in town among almost all the other journalists and most cops that what I was doing was wrong that a reputable journalist would not be having dinner with with uh, Joe DeCaro or somebody, yeah. that I was hanging out with bad people, and if I had any sense of pride, I would not do that. And maybe because I didn't go to journalism school, I don't know. It just struck me if I was going to do my job as a journalist, I needed to talk to everybody, and I needed to be feel free to do that. And I had learned that they would talk to me, and if you treat them respectfully and don't burn them and all that kind of stuff, 
they trusted me ultimately. Yeah. I mean, one one time, uh, it's an anecdote. Uh, after Jack Weaver retired from the police department, he bought a restaurant right across the street from from uh, Buddy's Bar. He, he took over a place called the Margarita, which was right across the street on Washington from the barrel bar that Buddy owned. And Buddy and his company had thrown a little going away party for Jack when he left the police department, gave him a few gifts. But Buddy was a little uncomfortable with Jack and now right across the street, a uh, Phoenix police intelligence sergeant right across the street from his from his bar. And so one Sunday morning, I got a phone call from Buddy and at my townhouse in, in West Phoenix and wanted to see me, but I come and see him. He had just bought an empty bar called the Redhead on Washington under the dog tracks, a little bowling alley, kind of a narrow mm-hmm. bar. And he was down there when I got down there Sunday morning about 11 o'clock. He was in there with a sledgehammer taking a wall down, covered in plaster dust mm-hmm. and sweaty in plaster dust and all this kind of crap. And he wanted to know whether Jack Weaver really had retired from the Phoenix Police Department, or whether he had simply gone undercover across the street from Buddy's As bar, because he knew I knew Jack pretty well. But Buddy trusted me enough to ask me that and to rely on my answer. And I told him, yes, Jack is <laughs> really, it's over for he's really retired. Yeah. I know Jack really well also, and, and he's really retired. Uh, Jack Weaver took a lot of flack also in the Bulls case because he opposed the official theory, and they tried to make him look like he was a mobbed-up cop. They smeared him as best they could, uh, and none of it was true. Uh, Jack was as righteous a cop as I've ever known. He was just like me. He talked to those guys, uh, and he had saved that. The guy that really ran Phoenix in those days for the mob was a guy named Paulie Shiro. Uh He was the guy running the gold scam at Motorola, in fact, among other things. When Tony Spilatro and Paulie Shiro came out from Chicago in the late 60s for the Chicago mob, Tony went on to Vegas. Paulie stayed in Phoenix, and they were the two Chicago mob guys running those two places. And Paulie was a killer, had done a number of people, not a very big guy, but a no-nonsense Chicago yeah. mob guy. Paulie and I both had one thing in common, we both had one lung working. One of the reasons that Weaver got close to Paulie, and through Paulie a lot of other people, was back in the day there was so much frustration in law enforcement about their inability to nail Paulie for anything, that some cops in the Sheriff's Department and the Phoenix Police Department, a little group of them, put together a death squad and planned to kill him. They were gonna they were gonna roust him and under the guise of him resisting arrest they were gonna kill him. They were gonna kill him. And uh, a couple of cops in town found out about that. I won't name the other guy because I mm-hmm. don't have permission, but Weaver is not bashful. Weaver was one of them. And so Weaver and a, a cop from Scottsdale kidnapped Polly, went and got him and forcibly took him somewhere, uh, to a motel someplace and hit him out. He was initially upset, uh, grateful when he discovered why they had grabbed him. And it took him a couple days to shut down the death squad. And it wasn't because they approved of organized crime, but they didn't approve of the idea of death squads being organized. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a slippery slope that yeah. God knows where it ends. And so they stopped it abruptly. And But Paulie was grateful, and Paulie, as a consequence, respected Jack Weaver forever. When, when Tony Spilatro was killed in Chicago, beaten to death with his brother Mike, Paulie was one of the guys in attendance and took part in that. There was a guy named Mel Vasey who was a maitre d' at a big bar, a restaurant here in town. Mel Vasey was an old-time mob guy. He retired as kind of the maitre d' at that restaurant. And when Spilatra was beginning to take heat because some of the people who knew him were getting grand juried and talking, and Mel Vasey was facing a grand jury subpoena, Tony got worried about that, and he sent a couple of guys down who killed Mel Vasey, wrapped him in a blanket and dumped him in a canal. 
Mal was beloved by all the old mob guys. I mean, mm-hmm. he was like an old uncle to all these guys. I mean, they really loved him. Paulie loved him. And Tony never should have killed him. <coughs> uh, Mal was the kind of guy who would have gone to his grave taking the fifth or whatever uh, to protect everybody. He was a stand-up guy personified. And for Tony to overreach and kill him was one of the reasons that Tony got beaten to death in really? Chicago. Yeah. Mal Vesey was... Tony was already in trouble because some of his guys had ratted out to the FBI, which is why he killed Mal. But they might not have killed him otherwise. But when he killed Mal Vesey, Tony Pilatro signed his own death warrant. Mm-hmm. And, and I understand indirectly because Paulie described to somebody uh, that, that Tony didn't die well. He whimpered. <laughs> I, only, I only was in the room once with Paulie. Once when, when uh, I was hanging out at Weaver's Bar one night talking to Jack. He got a phone call, and uh, it was a Paulie. And Weaver told me, hey, Paulie wants to come see me. You better leave. He's not going to want to talk to me with a journalist yeah. in the room. And I said, can I stick around long enough for him to get here and maybe pass him in the hall? And I'd like to just get you know, one eyeball <laughs> yeah. look at Paulie. Yeah. So I did. I stuck around, and he and I eyed each other as we came in. Sure. And, but, and I have no idea what he wanted to talk to Jack about. But Jack was retired at this point, so I have no idea what was on Paulie's mind, and Jack never told me. Weaver had been had been mentored by a, a cop in the Phoenix Intelligence Unit named Andy Watsick, who was really a surprisingly deep authority on the Chicago mob. And Jack had come here from Iowa as a cop, and Watsick had schooled him on the Chicago mob guys, and Weaver schooled me. Uh, the first year I was working for the Progress, and I knew Jack well, I spent a lot of time with Jack, with Jack verbally, giving me background on lots and lots and lots of people, lots and lots of history. And uh, so I, I was operating with a kind of a unique window on the Chicago mob and some of the games that went on here that probably a lot of other journalists did not have. Uh, and that afforded me well. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with that background. 